Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Pastor Phil. If you haven't got a chance to, to meet me or would like to ask questions about All Saints, catch me after the service or send me an email or give me a call. And welcome to all of you who are visiting online this morning. We're, we're so happy that you're able to join us through the uh, technology of, of YouTube and, and the various uh, other services that we have like Vimeo. Today we began, as Joe said, the first of four Advent Sunday services, time of the year that we always look forward to, a time of hope in a somewhat hopeless world. And it couldn't come at a more opportune time for some of us. It seems like we face what, it just seems like a never-ending, almost an endless uh, chaos of pandemic of loss, the difficulty, trials, fatigue, we're just worn out. And now we face perhaps another alarming variant of this virus. And the increasing grip of postmodernism and godlessness on our world. It couldn't come soon enough. Please stand for this portentous passage as we read this morning. Stand with me. But I'm going to read John 1, 1, and then John 14 in your bulletin. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Word of the Lord. Please be seated. Pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. What a gift he's come to reveal you to us and to bring us to you. Thank you for that revelation. Help us to walk in the light of it and in the warmth and love of his divine companionship through life and help your imperfect and glorious messenger to bring this message in a way that is both perfect and glorifying to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. I'll start by saying I'm not bragging about this, but this begins my eighth decade of listening to Christmas carols (laughs) and getting ready for Christmas and all the unattainable expectations that my wife has for us uh, during the Christmas season. Just kidding. And, And the Christmas story. Um, it seems like a long time, and uh, I don't think it's ever hit me as, as uh, strongly as it has this past couple of weeks thinking through this passage. Um, when we think and when I think about God becoming, God being transformed into human form, it's so far outside of anything I can imagine. It's just astounding that he gave his only son to leave heaven why would he have to leave heaven to come to this wretched, fallen earth for someone like me or for someone like you is unimaginable. Yet come he did. This passage today has, I counted, 29 words. Perhaps the most important, like I said, portentous, meaningful 29 words in the entire canon of Scripture. 
mean, it's not easy. It's a miracle after all. It took the church 451 years up until the Council of Chalcedon to reconcile what it really means for the Word to become flesh. This is not an easy thing to be grappled with. Even today in our Treasure Valley alone, it is loaded with heresies about the enfleshment or God becoming man. God became a human being. Think of that. One of the commentators I read this week, and he is, an, he is a respected commentator. If you've got a PhD from, from uh, Aberdeen, it, it is not a small thing. He said that as he contemplated the incarnation, he kept on trying to think of a way to capture it in the margins of his Bible. He said, I kept on trying to come up with words that would kind of help me to remember what it means. And he said, all I could come up with, with all of my education was, wow. (laughs) So there'd be a lot of wows today. So if that's the best he could come up with, it's probably, probably good enough for me. In the Chronicles of Narnia, if you read that or saw the movie, referring to the birth of Jesus, Queen Lucy said this. She said, yes, in our world too, a stable once had something inside, her, inside it that was bigger than our whole world. A stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Jesus is bigger far bigger than our whole world. And I was just thinking, and letting my, my imagination run a little bit wild, thinking about what, and we don't know, Scripture doesn't say, but what must the host of heaven, the angels, have thought to see Jesus transformed into the form of a man? It must have been... <laughs> Mind-blowing even for the angels to consider this. This transformation that had never occurred before and never will again. Think of what God has done here. God became flesh. He became one of us. How did the eternal God through whom the world was created and sustains the universe come as a helpless little baby into the world? You saw the picture on the, on the bulletin there? That baby can't do anything for himself or herself. Well, one way that the church fathers uh, explained it, which is far better than I can, comes from the second article of the Church of England. And it goes like this. The Son, which is the Word of the Father, begotten from everlasting of the Father, the very and eternal God, and of one substance with the Father, took man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin of her substance, so that the two whole and perfect natures, that is to say, the Godhead and the manhood, were joined together in one person, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ, very God and very man. So there you have it. Very, which is another word for saying truly, very God and very man. Truly God, truly man, fully God, fully man. In him, the fullness, as we read in Colossians 2.9, in him, in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwelt. 
the entire fullness of God dwelt, lived in the person of Jesus, the man of Jesus. And there he was. He grew up in a carpenter's family in Nazareth, played with his brothers and sisters. He had a pretty large family. They had a sinful nature, but Jesus did not. He never even committed a sinful thought. As I was uh, confessing my sins this morning, and the the fan came on to remind me how many of them there were, um, it was (laughs) just a thought. Jesus didn't have one. Much less act, much less a sinful motive. He had a normal family, so normal that they didn't even believe him. They thought he was out of his mind. One of the couple of translations say they thought he was crazy. But Jesus knew why he came, and he knew why he came in this way. His Father had sent him. God is ascending God. And in the, and in the book of John, just read, I'll just read a few. Verse 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his work. 5.24 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 5.30 Because I seek not my will, but the will of him who sent me. 5.37 And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Jesus mentions God sending him 24 times in the book of John. Yes, Jesus knew his mission. The question arises, why did he become one of us? I don't even want to be one of us. (laughs) I know how miserable the state of fallen man is. But Jesus became one of us. In Matthew 1.18, tells us why. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, before they consummated their marriage, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people. He will save his people from their sins. Well, that's why. That's why he became one of us. Because God so loved the world, his elect, that he sent his only begotten son so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So this sending was in order to save you and me. What does it mean to be saved from our sin? What is salvation from? Well, it means to be saved from the wrath of God. 
We don't talk a lot about the wrath of God because it's such a fearsome, awesome, frightening thing. Romans 1.18 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And that's all humans who ever lived, are living, or ever will live. We've all rebelled against God. None is righteous. No, not one. So what's the cup that Father gave Jesus to drink? It was the cup of the Father's wrath. That's why Jesus asked if the cup could be taken from him. But in order to do God's will, he drank it to the last drop. All of God's wrath he took upon himself so that we would not have to. We've been saved from the penalty of our own sins. We've been set free. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Blessed is the man or woman whose sin the Lord no longer counts against. Aren't you glad God doesn't count your sins against you? How many would you have for him to count? God remembers our sins no more forever. There's another reason God chose to veil Christ in human form. So that, so that humanity could see God face to face. And all of human history before this, God was an invisible God. No one looked on God's face. But God knows us. He knows what it takes to reach us. We're just people after all. The story is told of a little girl who cried out to her mother from the bedroom, Mommy, I'm afraid to be in this dark room alone. Her mother replied, it's okay, honey. The Lord is with you. And she called back, yes, but I want somebody with skin on him. (laughs) Well, Jesus is that God with skin on. And he's come so that we never have to be afraid again. Amen? Thomas wasn't much different, was he? He had to touch Jesus to believe him. Well, I want you to take a, take a, just a second, take a moment to think about the most powerful, impactful, unforgettable experience you ever had on planet Earth. I'll give you a couple seconds. Just think in your mind, what was it? What's in the back of your mind you can't get out that you've experienced? For me, and I, I think for Rhoda, and I've told a couple of you this story before, but we were sitting, we were in bed actually in, in Arizona, this is about 20 years ago, and we had a slider uh, out to the backyard, we had a pool in the back, and uh, I think it was one or two in the morning, I was, I was dead asleep, and I, I could sense a very bright light come in through the, through the slider, and I thought at first, man, must be a lot of ambulances or something out there, I didn't hear any noise, and it got brighter and brighter, and so I opened the slider, walked out by our pool, and looked over the top of the house, and I saw something. I, I, I don't think I'll ever see anything like it again. I've never seen anything like it before. But the entire sky was filled with like a kaleidoscopic colors. Just, it's, it's hard to describe, but they were, just kind of, they were just in and out, and all the colors of the rainbow. And uh, so I, I got wrote, I said, you aren't going to believe this. <laughs> I need a witness here. But the entire sky was filled for probably 30 or 40 minutes, and it was the Aurora Borealis. 
I checked the paper the next day to make sure that it wasn't a nuclear weapon that had gone off. But, but uh, an unforgettable experience. And that's just, that's just a little thing for God to do, right? That's just, that's just a small, what I would call, miracle of God. How about you? And I was thinking about the types of experience where God's glory was seen here on earth as he walked as a man and lived as a man and died as a man. And I thought of that Roman centurion. Do you remember at Jesus' crucifixion in the book of Mark? Probably the most powerful testimony of conversion and experience of the glory of God was given by that Roman centurion. Remember what he said? Truly, this man was the son of God. Do you think you ever forgot that? The most important single action in that man's life. Experience. He experienced God the man. And we have to think about the, about the disciples, particularly the, the evangelists, the gospel writers. Any of these men were with Jesus day and night for, for three years. And John, perhaps the most sublime of all the writers, talked about the person of Jesus, who he was, what he was, what he was, what he was about. You can't help but think that John and, and the other disciples, after Jesus died, how much did they think about the glory that they experienced in the person of Christ? We were with this man. This man was actually very God. Well, the incarnation of Christ, in the words of C.S. Lewis, the grand miracle, a cosmic mystery beyond our imagination, the eternal word through which all things were made. Jesus made everything. Stepped into his own creation. The creator steps into creation. In the form of a little baby. Jesus, the very Son of God, was as helpless and dependent as any other baby. As he nursed at Mary's breasts and was cared for by her, he entered this fallen world, leaving his father for the next 33 years. There is no mystery more profound than this. In our tradition, we consider the Bible to be a history of redemption. And in that great grand history, the fulcrum, the apex, is this incarnation of Christ. Light again entered a dark world. This event, this grand miracle, is what the entire Old Testament foretold in shadow form. We now read about this miracle that actually took place. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. This statement is one of the most significant and memorable ever penned. Its implications are limitless. It's provided the church over the centuries with a key to understanding the mystery of Jesus Christ, and it represents the heart and the very climax of the gospel. So we'll break this down briefly by the major words in this passage. So we begin with word. The word became flesh. The Greek word for word is logos. That is something where we get the word logical from. It's got to make sense. It's something that is said or communicated in a way that can be understood. 
God communicates to us. He's a communicating God. And he communicates with the intent that we understand what he's saying. Whether it's written, spoken, or embodied. Jesus was the embodied word of God. He's spoken into the human realm since the beginning. He spoke through his creation. He spoke through the prophets. He spoke through the Holy Spirit, through Scripture, and through the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. The Logos in John 1 is referring to Jesus. Jesus is the total message. Everything that God wants to communicate to man is in Jesus. There's nothing more. The messenger is the message. Now, Jesus showed a link between the written word of God that you have in your hands and himself in that he is the subject of the written word. He said this, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So we know God through his word. The author of Hebrews explained how, his, how this word speaks in Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, that's today, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appeared the heir of all things, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance, like that aurora borealis, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the word became flesh. Flesh in the Greek is sarx. It's where you get the word sarcoma if you're a doctor. It has to do with soft tissue tumors. Flesh. In the Latin, it's carne, chili con carne, or incarnation. That's where we get the word incarnate. In, enfleshed, becoming human. God becomes man. God becomes flesh in an amazing union of the seemingly alien. The divine with the human. That's why it took him 450 years to get this, this doctrine straightened out. It's still a stumbling block to many. I have several Jewish friends down in Scottsdale. <laughs> We've had several conversations about Christianity and Judaism and one thing they just have, uh, the, I, I think, the biggest difficulty accepting and believing has to do with something that they consider to be quite logical. If God by his nature is God, he can't be man. You can't be God and man. Secondly, if God by his nature is eternal, he can't die. God can't die. You Christians believe two very illogical things. And that's true. These are absolute mysteries. But John says that this fact, this fact of the incarnation is so fundamental to our faith that a denial of it constitutes an anti-Christian heresy. In 1 John 4, 3, he wrote, If any man deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. Are strong words. This truth is so central to our faith that if you want to test any other religion or cult, ask yourself this, what do they teach about Jesus? Was he God made flesh or not? 
That is the test of heresy. The glory that John saw in Jesus was the shining out into the darkness of the world of the eternal glory of the Word of God. Jesus took on our humanity so that we could take on His eternity. Aren't we thankful for that? C.S. Lewis aptly put it like this, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. I'll read that again. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. And he dwelt among us. John was doubtlessly referring to those great days in Israel's desert wanderings in the wilderness, making the point that although those days were great days for Israel, in our days something much better has happened. It involves all men, not just the tribe of Israel. And we know that John was making this contrast because of an unusual word that occurs in this verse. In English, it's the word dwelling or dwelt. We have it in the phrase, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, literally, the phrase means to pitch a tent. So we could also translate the verse, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Most of us today don't live in tents. I was thinking about this last evening. We don't live in tents, so maybe we could say something like this. The Word became flesh and, and rented a house in Meridian. Um, <laughs> I could identify with that. But the Word became flesh and lived among man. For the Israelites, the tabernacle, that portable wilderness tabernacle, was the center of their whole culture. So should it be with Jesus. Jesus is the center of our whole church. He should be the center of our whole life. Moses wrote, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So as to go by day and night, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And here's another mystery wrapped inside a mystery. Why? God wants to be with us and live with us. Is God lonely? Was the Trinity needing companionship? The only answer that we can come up with is that God loves us so greatly. He says he'll never leave us or forsake us. Now that's a while. God, for some inexplicable reason, wants to be with us. Well, we too on this earth live in tents, and this is where it kind of hits home. We're all, we're all living in tents. Tents are temporary. This isn't our home. These bodies aren't our eternal homes. We're just renting space here. We should always remember and long for our eternal dwelling place, like Joe talked about, with God in heaven and not grow too attached to our earthly tents, not to place too much value on our own residence here. Boy, we do love our tents. But God came to live in a tent so we could watch him more closely. Matthew and Luke tell us all about the interest the shepherds and the wise men and even Herod had in seeing this little baby. Because God wants to be seen and known in his son. But we've seen his glory. The Greek word for glory is doxus, where we get doxology from. The we here is that Christ's disciples witnessed the actual glory when Jesus was on earth. 
for three years. Glory denotes the visible manifestation of God's presence. God's glory is the sum of all of his attributes. How many attributes does God have? Many. Well, glory encompasses all of those and perfection. The rabbis in the Old Testament referred to this as Shekinah, the Shekinah glory describing the presence of God. Stephen Cole wrote this. When John says, we saw his glory, he may have been referring to, in part, the transfiguration, if you recall that. When he and James and Peter saw Jesus in his glory, John could not have forgotten that event, although he doesn't tell about it in this gospel. But he's also referring to Jesus' glory as revealed in all of his miracles. But only to those who were able to see those miracles. About the water into wine at Cana. In John 2, we read, This beginning of his signs at that marriage manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. Before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he said, The sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified in it. And yet, even after that amazing miracle, the Jewish leaders increased their efforts to kill Jesus, the one who is the resurrection and the life. But where was Jesus' glory most supremely evidenced? It was evidenced at the cross. When, Jesus, when Judas went out of the upper room to betray Jesus, Jesus said this, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. The cross displayed God's perfect justice and amazing love. And John alone from all the other apostles, with several of the women who loved Jesus, witnessed the crucifixion. So John must have had a special memory and a special relationship. Maybe that's why he called himself the loved disciple or the disciple who loved Jesus. In John 17, 1, we read, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, that's glory, isn't it? He was full of grace. Grace is charis, where we get the word charity from. The Eucharist, thanksgiving, kindness, thankfulness, goodwill. God is grace. Or as John says in his first letter, God is love. Grace is the love giving itself. And God is free and overflowing abundantly and lavishly with his goodness to sinful creatures. God gives us grace. This is the evidence, this is the ev- essence of his reality because nothing reveals the fullness of his deity more than the freedom of his grace. God has, what would you say, untappable, infinite stores of grace for you and for me. 
And that's the capstone of his glory. We saw his glory full of full of grace and truth. Somehow we got things kind of backwards at Christmas time. I don't know when this happened or how it happened. But we're rewarded, or we reward our kids or teach them, you know, if you're have you been naughty or nice? Your gifts are based on the uh, the sum of of that uh, of that equation. It's backwards with God. It's entirely different than the grace that God bestows. It's not based on our naughtiness or our niceness. Harry Ironside wrote this: Grace is the very opposite of merit. Grace is not only undeserved favor, but it's favor that's shown to the one who deserved the very opposite. And he was full of truth, sincere, authentic, genuine. The essence of what God reveals about himself in Jesus is this. First, is that he is true. He's real. He's more real than anything you see. And that's hard to believe because we tend to be empirical creatures. We believe what our senses feed us. Right? That Jesus is more real than our senses. Jesus, Jesus is beyond the empirical. In 2 Corinthians 4, we read this, and this is so important. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that we see are transient, they're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. God is truth, God is reality, and that is what we see in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And when you come face to face with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you come to a declaration that certain things really are true for all time. And speaking of truth, what's the truth about man? Because we've been hearing for generations that man's doing better. Things are getting better. Man, we don't have, we, we've got washing machines and microwaves and, and uh, I'm thankful for uh, uh, TV I can get, I mean, football games I can get on my iPhone and a lot of things, but um, we've kind of told ourselves or deluded ourselves into believing that given enough time, things will all turn out better and right and that all problems will eventually be solved if we have enough time. Technology, artificial intelligence, transhumanism, the manipulation of our very genes, Endlessly improving medical science. Sure, we can live forever. We'll populate Mars and other planets. We'll be like gods. How foolish. Given enough time, things will turn out exactly like they've been turning out since the beginning of time. The reason for this is that there's something wrong in the heart of man. There's something wrong with me. The Bible calls it sin. It could also be called rebellion or pride or selfishness or any number of similar words. It's the same principle. The truth about you and the truth about me is that our greatest problems are right inside us. We carry them with us. We can't shake them. We need the gospel. So how about Christmas in 2021? Surely these truths are too wonderful to keep to ourselves. The most blessed gift you can give this year is Jesus. Millions of men and women in our day 
It's outside our walls here. Want to believe in a system of values and yet have no real basis for their beliefs. They're confused about life when it comes down to it. We swim in a virtual ocean of misinformation about God. They don't know what is right or what is wrong, what's true or what's false. They want to believe that there's a thing called truth. They want to believe that there's possibly a God who is full of love and grace. They want to believe that life has meaning. But they have no valid basis for any of those beliefs. They live a meaningless existence without Jesus. They're looking. Just as Yuri Gagarin, the Russian cosmonaut, the first human to journey into outer space, said this in 1961 when he stepped outside of that capsule. I don't see any God out here. As Yeats wrote, without Jesus, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, and the worst, well, the worst are full of passionate intensity. Isn't that true? To these people and to people for all time, the Bible speaks with a special relevance when it says that there is a basis for the belief in goodness, in grace, in truth. And what's the basis? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Jesus Christ is the basis on which we can know that God is good and that the universe does have meaning. Whether we know it or not, we're longing, constantly searching all our lives for something that will meet what Blaise Pascal called the God-shaped vacuum in the human heart. That capacity was designed by God. God put that vacuum in our heart, and he intended to dwell there. We are called the temples of the Holy Spirit. Now at last in human history, Jesus pitched his tent with us to dwell with us. The greatness of this truth of the grand miracle assaults our minds, staggers our imaginations. But by that very fact, it also drives us to our knees in worship. Christmas can only be understood as a wonder. In the words of the great Charles Wesley, who wrote the carol, Maybe We Love the Best, he said this, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Amen.